Tēnā koutou, no mai, hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, Labour goes for dental. New Zealanders should be able to access dental care when they need it, without worrying about the bill. And at the moment, they can't do that. We will be live with Nationals' Nicola Willis, and he's been back living in the country for just a few weeks. But at number four on ACT's list, he should soon be an MP. Look, it's a challenge I'm looking forward to. It's, it's, it's exciting in some respects, um, but it is a huge responsibility, and, and you know, I'm taking it very seriously. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But we begin this morning with Chris Hipkins, fresh from launching his party's official re-election campaign with a promise to extend state-funded dental care to more New Zealanders. Hipkins, of course, took over as Prime Minister after Jacinda Ardern stepped down in January. And he's with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning. Some free dental care for some people in the year 2026. What's the point? We've, we've said that we're going to start rolling out free dental care. This is going to be a big undertaking. When we started rolling out free doctor's visits for children, we started with a smaller age group and then we progressively extended it. That's what we're intending to do with dental. So we're targeting that uh, group that are between 20 and 30 because when we looked at the evidence base, that's actually where a lot of tooth decay really starts to begin. So uh, by targeting that group for free dental care up front, then actually we can probably reduce some of the need for more elaborate dental care further down the track. 2026, though, we might be on Mars by then. We might be. Um, If I really cared about this policy, why wouldn't I support the Greens, who are going to introduce universal free dental care and fund it through a wealth tax? The first group um, become eligible in 2025 and then the next group in 2026. And the reality is, in order to do it, we've actually got to scale up the capacity to be able to deliver it. You can't just flick a switch and turn on, you know, extra dental care. So is the Greens policy not credible? I think they would really struggle, even if we had an unlimited amount of money, to be able to deliver it within a faster time frame because you actually have to train extra dentists. You have to, and In this case, we're not just going to be mm. training extra dentists because that's a longer-term goal. Um, we're going to have to bring in more dentists from overseas. We're going to have to train more dental assistants, um, and that's going to take a little bit of time. How many more dentists from overseas? Um, we reckon... At a maximum level, we'd need about 200 more. Um, but that's not just dentists. That also includes other people who work alongside dentists. How are you going to fund well. that? Um, th- that's all in the policy. So we've um, allowed provision for extra training. We've allowed provision for extra recruitment. OK. I want to consider three policies for your election campaign this morning that consider three of the most important issues for New Zealanders heading into October's election. It's now three weeks since you launched your GST-free policy. Three weeks. Can you name any economist or tax expert who thinks it's a good policy? I can't name an economist or tax expert that puts things back at the supermarket when they can't afford the bill that they get when they get to the checkout either. Um, that, that's, the, not the, the, that's not the question though, is it? You've had three weeks. Can you name any tax expert or any economist who thinks it's a good policy? Most tax experts would prefer a much purer tax system than one that's differentiated. It's again, not my question. If, if Can you, you name any tax expert no, I can't. or economist? But, but if you went to Australia, you wouldn't be able to name any that think that the differentiation there is a good thing either. But they have it, um, and it works. What evidence do you have that it works? Um, Australians pay less for certain products um, than they pay for others because they don't attract GST. What evidence do you have for that? Well, it's, you go to the supermarket in Australia, you can see it. There's, I mean, there's some food, food, food across the board in Australia. Everything in Australia seems to be a whole lot cheaper than New Zealand. Well, that's right. But they, they, have less G, they don't pay GST on, mm. on quite a range of food products. We're actually being more targeted than them, and we're targeting fruit and veg, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables and frozen fruit and vegetables. Where does Sir Michael Cullen rank? among our finance ministers. I think he's an exceptional finance minister. So so what did Sir Michael Cullen and your own party's tax working group not understand 
when they said it would be a poor use of money that would corrupt the comprehensive tax system for little gain. Yeah, I disagree with them. Mm. Um, I don't, what, what do they not understand? I, I didn't, I, it doesn't mean I, I think he was an outstanding Minister of Finance. Mm. It doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. Yeah, so, so what do they not understand? I think that uh, removing GST off fruit and veg is something that we can do that's going to deliver a tangible benefit mm. to New Zealanders right now. So again, though, it doesn't answer my question. What do they not understand? The tax working group, that group of experts convened by Sir Michael Cullen, one of the greatest finance ministers in your view. Well, they came up with a, a range of additional mm. proposals that they thought were better. Uh, ultimately, there isn't the support for some of those additional proposals. There isn't support in the Parliament for a capital gains tax, for example. So, you know, we, we're constantly looking at how we can make the system fairer. I believe that removing GST or fruit and vegetables mm. will be a step forward for New Zealanders, particularly those on lower incomes, because it means that they'll be able to afford uh, healthier choices. You've said that the Grocery Commissioner will make some sort of a difference. So can you explain to me in real terms how the Grocery Commissioner is going to monitor prices at the supermarket to ensure that those GST savings get passed on? Um, well, the, obviously, the Commerce Commission have an ability to monitor prices at the moment. Mm. There is already a system set up by MB, I think, I think it's through MB, the Price Watch website, which we had in place during COVID mm. to make sure that no-one was rorting the system during COVID. So there are mechanisms in, in place now to ensure that people aren't so, inflating so, okay, prices. Please explain to me, in, in real terms, how, how does the Grocery Commissioner go about their job? 3,500 ish supermarkets in New Zealand as many as 100 fruit and vegetable products every day that you need to monitor so explain to me how they, how they well, go Well if that. you want to know the exact mechanics of how they're going to do that you're probably best to talk to them they certainly have a... Well no this, a, is, this is why you say that, that, that this, this policy is a good idea because you've got the grocery commissioner yeah. to actually overlook this so, so explain well, they, to me well, how Well they will works. be able to look at the pricing that's being they'll be able to look at the prices that supermarkets are paying what they're charging mm. they'll be able to look at the supply chain and they'll be able to look at you know where who's making money and where in the supply chain so 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 they'll be monitoring prices across all those supermarkets every day would that be well they're not going to be in every supermarket every day um, but there will be uh, there is already a mechanism for consumers to report if they believe that you know prices are so this is it's on consumers to, to report it um, well, there'll be, I imagine there'll be a combination of uh, factors. The Grocery Commissioner, I'm sure, will do You imagine, or, 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 or you, you have the detail on this? Because this is the thing that, that, for example, your Finance Minister now says distinguishes this policy from, from, the, from what, was, what he described as a poor policy just last year. So, so I just want to know, in exact terms, what the Grocery Commissioner actually does. Well, if, sure if you look works. at the Commerce Commission, for example, we as politicians don't tell the Commerce Commission exactly what data to look for. They mm. go and look for data and then they decide whether there's anti-competitive behaviour or not. The Grocery Commissioner will mm. have the same remit with supermarkets. So the UK has a Grocery Commissioner. Mm. Recently, the UK introduced a VAT exemption, so that's the UK equivalent of GST, on period products. Now, the VAT in the UK is 5%. And the Guardian investigation found just 1% got passed on. So even in comparable countries with grocery commissioners, the policy doesn't work. I'm confident that the benefit will be passed on. In fact, the supermarkets have said that they will be ensuring that they're passing on the benefit. The tax working group was really explicit. They said that direct transfers would be much more targeted and much more effective, especially in helping um, lower-income New Zealanders, middle-income New Zealanders. And, of course, you've done it before. Recently, in fact, with the cost-of-living payment. Do you accept that a direct payment to lower-income New Zealanders would be more effective in relieving the cost of living pressure? Well, we're doing that too. Um, so we've also proposed, for example, to increase working for families by $25 a week for um, those working families with children because we do see that there's a, a place in the system for more direct transfers as well. A cost-of-living-style payment as opposed to just working for families and as opposed to corrupting the GST system? Well, as we saw with the cost-of-living payment, that was not without flaws and, and not without um, pitfalls itself when you sent the money to dead people? 
like I said, that, that, that system um, did not prove to be necessarily the best way to get targeted cost of living support to people. Did you focus group this? Uh, the GST of no. Didn't focus group it. Did you, did you do any internal polling on it? Oh, there may have been some. The party does that all of the time. And, and what, do, do you remember the internal polling said about its popularity? Uh, it was quite popular, yes. Mm. Would you agree it would be a deeply cynical move for, for a party to introduce an election policy that its own finance minister lambasted just a few months earlier and that no relevant experts will back? simply because it focus group well? No, that's not just the reason. We've also looked at what's happened to food and grocery prices over the last year or so, mm. and fruit and vegetables have been particularly hard hit by price increases. Um, and we are seeing that families are you know, having to make choices between buying fruit and veg or buying other unhealthy options. Um, this is something that will actually make a difference. The second policy I want to discuss concerns crime. Has violent crime increased under your government's watch? This is a complicated question, so if you'll forgive me, I'll give you a, a more detailed answer. Um, if you look at youth offending, we are seeing youth offending going down, but we're seeing the severity of the small, a small group of youth offenders going up, so right. ram raiding and so right. on, and we're seeing more violence in that. You know, driving a car into a dairy is a relatively violent act, so we're seeing more of that. We're seeing more reporting of domestic violence, and we have introduced a new offence around strangulation, mm -hmm. which is a big contributing factor to the increase in violent crime in the statistics. Now, I think that was the right thing to do, mm. the offence of strangulation. This was something that wasn't previously, um, you know, prosecuted mm -hmm. the, to the extent that it is now. Um, so overall, I don't think it's a black and white, is it going up or is it not? Because I think it's a more complicated um, you know, picture than that. Um, but there are certainly areas of crime that we are concerned about. We're very concerned about youth, and, you know, youth crime and retail crime. And we are concerned about the increase in gang activity. Let me phrase the question another way. Do you think New Zealanders feel safer now than when Labor came to power in 2017? Well, again, that's a complicated question. Whether they feel safer or not, um, we are doing a lot to combat the issues that... I think, will contribute to their levels Are of safety. Are New Zealanders safer? I think New Zealanders see the images on the TV um, of ram raids and of shootings and things like that, and that makes them feel unsafe. Mm. And that is a concern, and that's why we need to target those, those areas of crime. So you studied criminology, right? I did. Yeah. So, so when you think about ram raids... How impulsive are those offenders? Very. Um, but also, the thing that comes from, um, you know, if you look at the background of these kids, these kids are coming mm. from very dysfunctional backgrounds. 90-odd percent of the kids who have been doing repeat ram raiding have someone in their household who has been to prison or who is otherwise involved in the correction system. Mm. We have to break that cycle. If anyone thinks that locking those kids up is going to lead to less crime in the longer term... It's not, because all we're going to right. do is perpetuate the cycle. We have to get those kids out of trouble. We've got to give them a more positive future. Some of these kids are 10 or 12 years mm. old. Mm. Um, I'm not going to write them off. I'm going to say, let's make sure we're putting something in place that gets them onto a better path. OK. The, the second policy I want to raise of those three is your policy that it will mean filming a RAN raid for social media will be an aggravating uh, factor at sentencing. Now, you've just told me that uh, these young offenders are very impulsive. So d describe to me the mindset of a young person who's going to be dissuaded from committing a ram raid because of that aggravating factor. There's a certain element of notoriety that these young offenders mm. are looking for. And, I mean, I've, ha I've had conversations with mm. some of them. I've been and visited some of the youth justice facilities. There's an element of notoriety. If they're on TV news and they see themselves on TV news or they see their mates on TV news because someone's been filming it and posted it to social no, media... No doubt. Sorry, then, you're not answering the question here. So, so describe to me the mindset for someone who was going to commit a ram raid, but now that your, your government has, has introduced a rule whereby it's an aggravating factor if they film it on social media, that's going to stop 
stop them from doing the ram raid. We Explain are, to me how that works. We are trying to discourage um, the perpetuation of this idea that ram raiding is a so, legitimate so, so thing. So you are discouraging people the people you just described to me as being very impulsive. Yeah, but look, it's not going to be one thing. That's, this is just no, no, one no, of explain, the things. Explain but to, I think, you, I think you study criminology, so explain to me how that works. Well, I want to know why this is a good policy because it sounds good to, yeah. to people who are engaged with politics and who are concerned yeah. about crime and who are going to be voting in this election. But if the, if the purpose to it is to actually stop ram raids, I want to understand how someone you would describe as very impulsive is going to stop doing a ram raid because you've made an aggravating factor if they film it. Because we're trying media. to change the culture here, the culture that says it's OK to steal a car, film it, drive into a dairy, mm. put it on social media and gain notoriety from it. So it's not just one thing. We're doing that. Uh, we're doing a range of other things as well, including changing where these kids end up so that they can end up in the youth court quicker um, because the youth court's actually got more tools, not to put them in prison, but mm. actually to keep them out of prison. Um, by getting them to the youth court faster, we can actually make sure that we're doing more. And that includes those younger kids as right. well. The last question on this, and then I'll move on. You say you want to change the culture. You described to me offenders who are 10 or 11 years old Last opportunity, describe to me how they are going to be dissuaded by a law that says it's an aggravating factor if you film this ram raid on social media. It's Like I said, there's no silver bullet here. It is one of a number of things so we're doing. So it's an ineffective policy. Uh, no, it's I, not I, a good policy. If the purpose is to stop these kids from ram raiding... You've introduced a law that sounds good to people who are concerned about ram raiding, but actually does nothing at the root cause. No, I, I disagree that we're doing nothing at the root cause. No, this no, is no, only that one policy, of the things that, that we are doing. Yeah, but this is only one of the things that we are doing. We've got a whole suite of measures. Yes, we are throwing a lot at it because it is a big problem. Mm. OK, uh, my final policy concerns health. So in the time you've been in government, we've seen an explosion in the number of vape stores in New Zealand. There are now roughly 1,000. The Asthma Foundation reckons one in five 18-year-olds in New Zealand is a regular vapour. And now, weeks before an election, you announce plans to crack down on vape stores and almost halve the number of stores if you are re-elected. Why has it taken an election campaign to meaningfully crack down on this? Um, what we've seen is that the number of vape stores has actually proliferated since we made the last announcements, which we made as a government around reducing flavours, around reducing the number of vape stores in terms of where they can be and so on. In that short period of time between when we announced that and when the new regulations come into force... Um, we saw an even bigger explosion mm. in vape stores. So, of course, we look at that and say, that's not what we were, had been intending. So now we're going to go further than that. And so, basically, we're going to take a similar approach to vaping to what we've taken mm. to tobacco, which is to really limit down the number of stores to about 600 across the country. Then we can ensure that they're mm. not near schools and so on. So it's not like vape stores only popped up after you introduced those regulations. It was only a couple of months ago that you introduced those regulations. So my question is, why has it taken five years of Labor being in government to actually crack down on this? Well, vaping has grown significantly during mm. that time. During the five years? That, that's right. And, and so we have been doing things during that time. Um, but Not, not I, enough to stop a thousand vape stores yeah, that's from right. proliferating. And, well, no, I don't, there, I don't disagree. It's a problem. There are four in the Mangere Town Centre now. I don't disagree. It's a problem. That's why we've set out... But uh, you have uh, waited uh, until election uh, campaign to well, do it. Well, no, I, I mean, you can't stop, you know, putting forward ideas in an election campaign. The whole idea is you do put forward Well, the whole idea is you do it campaign. when it becomes a problem, which would have been three or four years ago. Well, and we have been doing a lot during that time. I mean, you'll see earlier this year we announced the, you know, reduction in the number of mm. flavours that are available. We have um, we have taken steps to, you know, keep them mm. away from schools and from marae and places where people are at higher risk. So... Uh, this is, you know, it's a continuation of yeah. an overall approach. But I also do want to say, what I don't want to do is see people going back to tobacco because tobacco becomes easier to access than vaping. We all agree with that. I think, you know, yeah. vaping is a good way of getting people out of smoking. What I don't want to see, though, is that it becomes then a new desirable thing, which means people mm. who weren't smoking take it up. One in five 18-year-olds.
Um, I want to finish up by talking about what it takes to win elections. Your party put out a social media post saying that National intended to cut interest-free student loans. Why? Um, I didn't see that. I wasn't aware it was going out. You have out. seen it now, though, I, right? I, Of course I've seen it now. I wasn't aware of that, and it certainly wouldn't have gone out had I been aware of it. I want to run a campaign that's robust. Mm. We are going to critique the you know, the proposals put so, forward by the opponents, sure. but, but we, what, what they're actually putting forward, not, so, not that. And, and, and to be clear, they're not putting forward no, that policy. So right. why did that happen? Um, I, I don't know how that happened, but we've certainly talked to the team to make you sure that ask? it didn't happen. That was human error, ultimately, and it won't happen again. Is it more important to stick to your principles or to win? Um, I think both are important because actually you give effect to your principles by winning um, because then you get yourself into a position where you can actually mm -hmm. live up to the promises that you make. I know that there are some people who would rather be absolutely purist and, and never compromise on anything. Mm -hmm. Compromise is a legitimate part of the democratic process. I think winning is important, mm. but I'm not going to do that at the expense of my principles. I set out last Sunday, mm. this time last week, I set out some bottom lines, areas where I wouldn't go. Yeah, Winston Peters, we get that. Uh, in the eyes of many, though, you have defined yourself, at least as Prime Minister, by ruling out more ambitious policies. I go back to that decision to rule out a comprehensive capital gains tax and a wealth tax, and you said this, we simply didn't have the mandate. No mandate. According to what? Well, we were very clear at the last election that you know we didn't, we weren't going to be doing a wealth tax or a capital gains tax. And had we done that, I don't think we would have been keeping faith with the electorate. But this is this was a decision heading into this election. So heading into this election, my decision to rule out a wealth tax was because when I, I mean, I did, we did get the analysis done. Mm. What would be the pros and cons? But of you a said there's tax? no mandate, but we're talking about heading into an election campaign. Surely you get the mandate heading into an election. Yeah, and having looked at the evidence and having looked, you know, had done the analysis mm. about whether a wealth tax would work for New Zealand given we would be one of the only countries in the world mm. introducing one. Oh, one of the only ones uh, that doesn't have a CGT, I, right? I, well, that's a different argument. Well, well come, actually, they're the we same. Can, we can come back bit. to that in a minute, but let's deal with wealth tax. Um, a wealth tax would potentially just mean that a, a significant exodus of wealth from New Zealand to the countries that don't have a wealth tax, which, be, which would be almost all of the others. I um, mean, actually, economically, that would mean fewer jobs, it would mean all of the things that go with that, and actually less revenue for the government Is overall. Is there any part of you that has revisited or questioned that decision since? On the wealth tax, no. On a capital gains tax, let, let me be really frank with you, I think you know, New Zealand does have a gap in its, its mm. tax system here, but one government is not going to be able to change that without there being a longer-term degree of consensus around that because a capital gains tax takes about 10 years before it starts to generate significant revenue unless you apply it retrospectively, which mm. no-one, I think, would ever propose. Yeah. Um, then... You know, you need to have it in place for mm. the better part of a decade before you start to generate revenue. So if we, I don't think you know it's going to serve New Zealand's interests well to have tax flip flopping around every time there's a change of government. Mm. So you know, we we set up the tax working group because we wanted mm. to try and achieve a consensus about a more diversified tax system. Ignored their advice, got which, a majority government, still ignored their advice, and headed into an election campaign without fighting for these things. Well, look, I mean, we we need to have a tax system that is enduring and that mm. doesn't flip flop around. Let, let me finish with the big picture. Labor came to power six years ago, promising to tackle the housing crisis. Mm. Kiwi Build, we all agree, was a disaster. Houses today are more expensive relative to incomes in New Zealand than they were when you took over. And before we blame COVID, they were also more expensive relative to incomes before the COVID property boom. You promised to tackle the mental health crisis. The head of the Mental Health Foundation said this at the end of last year, quote, the transformation of mental health is failing. Things are overall getting worse, not better. And climate change. The light rail you promised would be in Mount Roskill two years ago still doesn't have a single inch of track. Agriculture still isn't paying for its emissions. And as Prime Minister, your first action was to reinstate a tax cut for fossil fuels. 
Your last was to oversee a $236 million raid on the Climate Fund. You have had six years in government. You've lost numerous cabinet members to scandal and incompetence. And when we consider that record heading into the campaign, why should anyone think a future Labor government has the capacity to deliver on its promises? Well, I'm sure you'll let me go through each of those one at a time now, Jack. Thank you. If we talk about Kiwi Build, we have built 3,000 Kiwi Build homes. Yes, that's below what we had expected to do, but we've seen record numbers of building consents for building new houses. We're building a record number of new mm. state houses, um, more than any government since mm. the 1950s. Houses are more expensive, and, rents are more expensive, and, and you made 3% of that And promise. that is a global phenomenon. No one was going to turn that around overnight, but we're continuing to make progress on that. On mental health, we're building a new mental health system from nothing. A million mental health sessions have been delivered under the free, mm. you know, access and choice free mental health initiative that we've put in place. That's a million sessions more than were there before, and that's growing now. It took a while to scale up, but it is scaled up, and it, and it continues to scale up. So, I, I, yes, it's a work in progress. There is more to be done there. On climate change, I made it really clear when I became Prime Minister that I didn't want feel-good initiatives, I wanted initiatives that were going to reduce our emissions. Mm. So I have been unrelenting in that. Basically, initiatives that... Like increasing petrol taxes. Initiatives, for example, like the uh, clean car rebate, or not the clean car rebate, the, um, the cash for clunkers scheme, which was basically going to mean people could trade in their old cars and get a, a, a lower emissions vehicle. That was going to cost half a billion dollars so, and so, reduce our emissions by not very much. So, so, Whereas the New Zealand steel deal and the Fonterra mm. deal, they actually make significant reductions so in our emissions. Did, did you get um, emissions modelling on your decision to take $230 million from the Climate Fund? That was in the paper, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 sorry. The did two, you do emissions no, modelling? Sorry, I thought you were talking about the fuel tax. No, on no, no, the, the, the emissions modelling that you announced this week. The $230 million in emissions, some of that was actually just initiatives, changes did, to initiatives. That's not so, for question. example, did, the pricing did you, of did agricultural emissions, the pricing of agricultural emissions, we're still doing that, mm. um, but there's been a change to the way we're paying for it. And did you get, did you get emissions modelling on that? On those particular savings initiatives, mm. I don't recall that being done. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Good luck for the campaign ahead. Labour leader Chris Hipkins. After the break, it is National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Hey, Akune, we're back in a moment. Very good. Hawke Mai, welcome back to Q&A. National has unveiled its long-awaited tax plan, promising almost $15 billion in cuts, targeted predominantly at what it calls the squeezed middle. Nicola Willis is National's finance spokesperson and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good what morning, What are you trying Jack. to achieve with this? We're trying to make sure that New Zealanders who are struggling through a cost-of-living crisis have the opportunity to have a bit more income in their pay every fortnight so that they can keep up with what have been rapidly rising costs. We want them to keep more of what they earn, to know that they can get ahead mm. and to have the assurance that when they work hard, the government will back them. Just because I know so many people are going to be tuning in this morning, let's start with some economic theory. Would you agree that introducing new money into an economy without increasing the supply of goods would be inflationary? It depends how you do it. If you, in if you introduce new money from outside an economy into an economy without increasing the supply of goods, that's a simple equation. So I think what you're asking me about is the foreign buyer's tax, yeah. which we're proposing to put on. And our view on that tax... Uh, is that will, it will have a couple of impacts. One is it will encourage more people to come mm. to New Zealand and invest in our businesses, productive growth, uh, entrepreneurs who want some capital to innovate with. The other effect that it will have is it will bring some revenue into New Zealand that will help fund our tax reduction plan. Right. Now, you have to look at our tax reduction plan as a whole. I, because I in its first year, you will be aware... 
it saves more money than it spends. So, so $740 million in new money you are essentially introducing to the economy mm -hmm. through that foreign buyers ban or the tax on, on foreign buyers. Um, that is m money that is coming from outside of our economy without increasing the supply of goods within our economy, which is, by its definition, inflationary. Well, at the same time as we're doing that, we're reprioritising money away from wasteful backroom bureaucracy. We are also ensuring that money that's currently being spent but on contractors no, this and is consultants. New money, though. This is this is no different to if the government just decided to borrow more. It has exactly the same inflationary impact. But we're talking about introducing new money to an otherwise confined economy. This well, is inflationary. Well, well, the effects of that could be a couple of fold. One, you may see that some of that money ends up being used by New Zealanders to save more, mm. to reduce their debt by paying off their mortgages faster, in which case it's not going to go straight into cycle in the economy. Right. The they, may, effect, they may choose to save. They may choose they may to pay also their choose mortgages to spend. off I mean, faster. Yeah, yeah, they may also choose to spend, though, right? But, but if they choose to save, that will mean that that money is not so in they circulation could, if in If New economy. Zealanders all choose not to spend the money, then it won't be inflationary. The second thing that could happen, Th Jack, That's the theory, though, right? My, yes, if they choose right. to if, save, if New Zealanders not... choose to save, then it won't be inflationary. I want to talk more about this this um, foreign buyers ban because it is absolutely critical to the overall funding of, of your tax policy. So, seven hundred and forty million dollars a year on average, it's going to bring in. How exactly did you reach that figure? So, what we did was we looked at uh, house purchases prior to the foreign buyer ban being looked in, uh, mm. brought in, and we looked at the pattern of purchases. Then we scrolled forward and we thought, well, given house prices have now gone up, given the pattern of where those homes were bought in the past, i.e. they tend to be bought in those areas with luxury homes, you know, the Coromandel, mm. the Bay of Islands, Queenstown. Nice uh, and given uh, the luxury type of homes and the prices they will be paying uh, and the effect that will be had once you bring off a ban at the same time as you're getting rid of the effective capital gains tax in mm. the form of the Bright Line test, what sort of pattern of purchase can we expect and what revenue can we expect? And we're comfortable that our assumptions are cautious. Right. We had them checked by an external advisor who mm. agrees with us that they are reasonable assumptions and we're confident in our costings. OK, so, so if you have that big model, that grand model, mm -hmm. you still get two numbers at the end, right? A median house price and a total number of house sales you're forecasting. Mm -hmm. So what are those numbers? And those numbers will vary uh, depending on what exactly happens. Well, no, to get $740 million, you, yes. need to have, you need to have a mm -hmm. median price, an average house price, yes. and a total number of houses. Yes, that's right. So what is it? Well, those numbers will vary, but we, we have uh, an estimate in our model for those numbers. And so what is the estimate in your model? The estimate in our model is that the uh, average price will be more than $2 million and that we will sell fewer than 2,000 homes. I want to just on, focus in here. No, 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 no. So the average price is going to be yeah. $2 million. More than. More than $2 million. So That's what is right. the average price going to be? It's going to be more than $2 million. Yeah, what is the average price going to be? Well, it will depend on which homes sell and real estate agents but, so are So this saying, is an average. No, 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 no. This is, a, this is, this is why we have an average. So what is, the, what is the median price across all of those homes you're expecting to sell? What is the median price, the average price? It, it will depend on exactly what happens, but Nicola, it will be about two... Nicola, you want to be the finance minister. I do. You have, to give us the, you have to give us the average. It doesn't change. The average doesn't change. The average in According our, to the your average model, in our the model average? in its first year is $2.9 million. But my point so is a many... really good one, Jack, and I want you to listen to it. No, 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 no. I want to, I want to <laughs> dig into these numbers, and then, and then we'll give you an opportunity to do that. I will, okay. I'll make sure you have an opportunity. So $2.9 million dollars. Okay, so how many houses will you need to sell at $2.9 million? Fewer than 2,000. Fewer than 2,000? That's right. How many houses were sold to foreign buyers in 2018? 
My point that I was trying to make earlier, and I think it's really Mm. important your listeners hear it, is this. You cannot compare what's going to happen exactly in our market today with 2018 or even with now because two big changes have happened. The first is uh, that Labor has introduced a bright line test, which Mm. means that many people who own a second property in places like Queenstown or the Coromandel have been put off selling that home. Mm. So that has potentially depressed the market for those luxury homes. Mm. The second thing that's happened is that house prices have increased significantly Mm. uh, since uh, when the foreign buyer was last on. The third thing that's happened is that we think that the proportion of people who will want to come and purchase is going to recover as soon as you lift that ban. I'm just doing the maths, okay? So, um, in 2018, before the foreign buyer ban was Mm -hmm. lifted, how many purchases as a percentage of overall purchases in New, in New Zealand did foreign buyers represent? I don't have that number right okay, now. Okay, I, I do. It's 3%, right? So so if the average price for houses that you're going to sell is going to be 2.9, I've rounded up to $3 million, right? Mm-hmm. So if the average price is, is um, $3 million, even though in 2018 they were just 3% of buyers, mm. they would have to represent 28% of buyers. Well, in that top tier. So no, 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 no. The point is that for your numbers to work, you have to increase the number of foreign buyers almost tenfold from 2018 before that ban was lifted. That's fantastical. No, Jack, that is not the case. What actually needs to happen is that when we lift the ban, we will see foreign buyers entering the market. We will see probably Mm. much more transactions in that part of the market, in that luxury end of the market. Mm. The next thing that will happen is that it won't just be houses selling at that price point. There will also be houses selling at much higher price points. Mm. We're talking $10 million homes, $20 million homes. $20 million homes. So what was the most expensive house sold in New Zealand last year? This is the point. The the market last year, I'm not going to compare the market last year with a market that doesn't have a foreign first, buyer ban. First part of 2022 was absolutely gangbusters. So what was the most the expensive house sold in New Zealand last the year? The other thing that's important to remember is that last year there was a bright line test applied over a 10-year period, mm. which meant that anyone who had bought their house in the past uh, couple of years knew that if they then sold it, mm. they would have to pay a full capital gains tax on it. So it's not fair okay. to look at that market you're talking and about say it's indicative of houses, what's right? going to happen going forward. You're talking about $20 million houses, In some right? cases, yes. Okay, well, good news, I've got a photo here of a $20 million house. That was the most expensive house sold in New Zealand last year, Paratai Drive in Demuera. Um And just check out the interior. Lovely, unspoiled views of the Hauraki Golf. So that was the most expensive house sold in New Zealand last year. $20 million that cost. If you sold 50 mansions for $20 million, 50 of those, okay? So not one like we did last year. If you sold 50 of those, and then you got your $10 million mansions as well, and you sold 50 of those, you would still be more than half a billion dollars short of your projection. But that's over a four-year period. No, 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 that's for one year. That's for one year. We can do the maths right now if Jack, you want to do them. Jack, no, no, no. Uh, this is, I mean, we, this is, we this believe, is absolutely we critical believe to your that funding. Yes, and we are very confident in our costings because we think that there will be hundreds of transactions. Right. We think that there will be people who want to purchase these properties. Mm. We believe that we will get the tax revenue from them. And we think that our estimates are cautious, they're conservative, okay. they're based on the pattern of purchases that have happened previously, so the pattern of purchases interest, that have happened in the interest of transparency in and economic credibility as mm-hmm. the person who wants to be the next finance minister, will you commit to releasing your full model? 
we have already released no, 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 the basis no. of our costings. The, the model, will you release the full model that gave you the costings, including that 2.9 median figure for the average house price you're going to sell to foreign buyers? Will you commit to releasing that model? I don't think it's necessary because I've released my assumptions. I've made it In clear that they've been In the interest of transparency checked. and as a representative of the party that, that sells itself on its economic credentials, will you, will you release that model? I simply don't think it's necessary, Jack. Wow. Okay, let's talk about um, tax and international treaties. You, you say in the document that you have sought legal advice mm -hmm. on FTAs. Yes. Did you seek advice on tax treaties as well? We have subsequently talked to people about tax treaties because the view on tax treaties is that it does depend on whether or not the foreign buyer charge is mm. seen as a tax or not, and it also depends on the, the country that you're dealing with. So in the case that um, David Parker desperately brought up during the week, mm. we think he's completely wrong for two reasons. One, at the moment, Chinese buyers are totally banned from purchasing mm. houses in New Zealand. And what we're creating is some conditions under which they could buy in certain cases if properties are worth mm. two, more than $2 million. But you'll tax them, right? Yes, that's right. Mm. We will make we will make them pay a very significant charge at point of purchase right. for permission to buy a home. So but the second thing is this. This week, the government introduced a bill which would have unilateral tax treatment of digital services. And they did that because countries do, from time to mm. time, do that. And okay. we reserve the right as New Zealand to do that in terms of our tax treatment. Many other countries around the world tax foreign property. There's no reason for foreign purchases of property. And there's no reason New Zealand shouldn't too. Except for the non-discrimination provision that, that is present in many of our tax treaties with countries. So in our tax treaty with China, it says this. It's not possible for residents of China to be subject to any taxation which is more burdensome than the taxation of New Zealand. And there is a distinct difference between tax treaties and the FTAs, which you sought advice on when you were, when you were developing this policy. So we've been speaking with Professor Craig Elliff from Auckland University. He's a professor of taxation and the director of the New Zealand Centre for Law and Business, a former tax partner at KPMG and Chapman Tripp, and he has real concerns about the policy. This is what he says. About half of New Zealand's tax treaties have a non-discrimination clause, including Australia, Canada, China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Mexico, the US and the UK. That non-discrimination clause would mean you cannot introduce a foreign buyer's tax. I would expect a significant possibility of a challenge by the taxpayers, i.e. the foreign buyers. There would also be a significant political and legal risk with our treaty partners. The treaty partners could terminate the double tax treaty or negate various parts of the agreement. There are many other political consequences, such as the termination of agreements like FTAs for such a serious breach of international law. Now, that's not just some guy that is the director of the New Zealand Centre for Law and Business, a professor of taxation at Auckland University. What does he get wrong? Well, there are other views which interpret those tax treaties differently. There's clear evidence that many of the countries he's listed already do these charges themselves. Mm. And finally, and I think this is really important, let's get in the real world. Do you really think that China is going to have a diplomatic incident with New Zealand because we say, you know how we banned people from your country from buying houses altogether? Mm. Well, now we're going to let them, but the condition is they have to pay a charge. Actually, that's a step forward in terms of their rights with regard to New Zealand, not a step backwards. And so we are confident that this can be diplomatically mm. managed. Right, so, so you think this is going to require diplomatic management? No, I do not think that this is going to trigger the kinds of legal disputes that your professor has referred to. What modelling have you done on the pressure that the foreign buyer allowance will put on houses 
in the $1.7 to $2 million category? Well, what we wanted to do was set a floor so that we could be confident that foreign buyers weren't competing with New Zealanders in either the first home buyer market mm. or the median part of the market. Now, bearing in mind mm. the average house price in New Zealand is less than a $1 million. So what, what you're asking me to, uh, to compare is, well, if prices at Gucci go up, is that going to affect prices at Glassons? And mm. essentially, we don't think it will. Right, you don't think it will? Have you modelled it, was my question. No, we have not modelled that. Haven't modelled it. So, so there is, I mean, if we're to once again reflect on economic theory, there's every reason to think that if you were seeking to sell a house for $1.7 million, which would be like a three-bedroom house in Mount Albert, um, gucci um, that you might be incentivised to increase the price so that you could attract foreign buyers, if indeed foreign buyers are able to purchase well, houses. look, I think that that is going to highly depend on what foreign buyers want to buy. And what evidence tells mm. us from the past when we didn't ban mm. foreign buyers was that they tend to want to buy luxury properties, not typical family homes. Mm. They typically want to buy in areas that are particularly distinctive, whether that's the Bay of Islands, the mm. Coromandel, Queenstown. Uh, and so we don't think that it's going to have a massive effect on properties under $2 million. If it comes to pass that uh, we can't introduce this tax on buyers from China, uh, the US, the UK, Japan, Mexico, those other countries, do you accept it will be impossible to reach that 750 I think we're going to be figure? able to sell these properties and I think we're going to be able to generate this revenue. And i tell you what else. Mm. We have put together our tax plan very cautiously. Mm. In fact, the estimates we've done for how much the tax indexing will cost, mm. they're less than even the CTU say, and last time I checked they were doing attack mm. ads about us. And when and we yet, look at the cost of the you family release, boost, and you won't when we release look at the, the cost of us. the family boost yeah. policy, our external reviewers mm. said, hang on, we think it'll cost less. We said we're going to go with the cautious but, estimate. But you won't release when we look at the, the, the price us, of the climate dividend, well, yeah. the climate pr the ETS price has gone up since we so, uh, did the modelling. So, so, so talk to us about your casino, your casino, you want to um, tax offshore casino operators, online gambling. So you reckon you're bringing in about $180 million a year. And considering that policy, have you or your colleagues met with representatives of Sky City or the gambling industry in New people Zealand? People in our team have spoken with people from right. Sky City. So you've been yes. lobbied? Yes. Right. Yes, because you can imagine <coughs> the domestic gambling industry mm. look at the wild west, the unregulated world mm. of online gambling, and they say, hey, is it reasonable that we have a harm minimisation framework mm. here in New Zealand designed to put controls and constraints on gambling and we apply that to New Zealand firms but not to offshore? Mm. And I look at that from a position of fairness mm. and what's right and from a policy perspective, I don't think it's right to allow that Wild West to go on. Have you heard of VPNs? I have. How do they work? Uh, I was um, informed about them during the week. They allowed you to sidestep geoblocks. Mm. So what's to stop anyone who wants to access international online gambling institutions that aren't uh, complying with New Zealand law from New Zealand? Well, I just think really human nature is such that people want to do things in a way that's convenient. And at the VPNs moment we know VPNs are we have... extraordinarily convenient. Well, you the... literally hit a button. You just do that. Click it. Maybe you pay 30 bucks a month for a subscription. And there it. will be ways of pursuing that because the big well, international... What are those ways? Because... Just let me finish. Yeah. Because the big international providers know that under a regime where they have to register as a company mm. in New Zealand, comply with our company tax requirements, mm. our GST requirements, our gambling tax mm. requirements, that anything they're doing to 
promote or market themselves as something that can avoid tax is going to be very problematic. Right, so but, but we don't see that as being a way for anyone to get a decent market share in New Zealand, mm. and we think that that's something that can be but, followed but you up had no, you had no advice on, on the implementation of VPNs when you developed this policy either, did you? Well, look, there are a number of policy areas in New Zealand where people practically could use a VPN, but mm. in reality don't. Like what? Well, if you look at people downloading things from offshore, mm. actually most people are happy to pay a Netflix subscription. Yeah, but Netflix costs money overseas as well. Yes, but my point, Jack, is that while there are ways that people can evade charges, you find that actually most people don't want to break the law. And what you're saying to me is anyone who's online gambling now in future will be prepared to break the law by avoiding our regulatory regime. And I think better of New Zealanders than that. Mm. I think actually most people will want to comply and use it legal mm. channels. I, I know we're going to be speaking again before the election. We've only talked a little bit about inflation. We haven't talked at all about economic growth, so that will be for next time, <laughs> and I look forward to that. But I want to finish again by thinking about credibility. So what happens if you fall short on these revenue projections? You say that it's totally costed, that you can ring-fence this tax policy, $15 billion in, $15 billion mm. distributed. What happens if you don't make that money? Because you can't put the proverbial genie or tax cuts back in the bottle. Mm. Well, that's right. We're making a commitment to New Zealanders. Mm. I will be looking at them in the eye during this election campaign and saying you can guarantee this tax relief which National is campaigning yeah. on. And there's a couple of things that give me comfort about that commitment. Mm. The first is, as I said, uh, we've been very cautious in the way we've put together our estimates. The second is this. We have not yet put forward our full t fiscal plan, mm. but we have been very cautious about the additional spending promises we are making in this campaign, unlike our counterparts, the Labour Party, who have already made significant okay. announcements okay. which Sorry, will require a lot more borrowing. And, well, so, 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 no, 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 no. Please answer that question. What do you do mm. if your revenue falls short of your projections? I don't think it will. And and we are I know you don't think it will. Reductions. What do you do if it does? I don't think it will. I'm not prepared to address a false hypothetical. All right. We look forward to speaking with you again before the election. National's Finance Spokesperson Nicola Willis. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Next, he was living in Australia until just a few weeks ago, but now he is set to be an MP. We meet the candidate who's vaulted into fourth spot on ACT's party list. Kia ora iti. we welcome back. Axe candidate Todd Stevenson was the bolter on the party's list, brought in ahead of several of the party's current MPs to fourth position, which on current polling would essentially guarantee him a spot in Parliament. Until recently, Stevenson was living in Australia and working in the pharmaceutical industry. He's standing in the Southland electorate. And when I met him in Queenstown this week, I began by asking why he decided to stand. Look, I've been following uh, New Zealand over the last few years and I think the country's heading in the, right in the wrong direction, I should say. And I think a majority of New Zealanders think it's heading in the wrong direction. Um, so I've decided to come back to New Zealand, uh, put my hand up and um, stand for ACT. And it's a party I've um, supported for a, for a long time. You know, I do believe in the values of personal responsibility, individual freedom, smaller government. Um, and I think ACT's putting forward the policies at this election which can actually deliver real change for New Zealand. You have been involved with ACT since the party's inception, I believe. So, so why have you waited until now, when ACT is polling consistently in the double figures, to stand as a candidate? 
Yeah, well, I did actually join back in when I was at university at, at Otago in 1995, and I actually campaigned for uh, five elections for ACT. I didn't stand, but I was um, campaigned for the party and supported it. Uh, and then, yes, I've been in Australia actually for the last 17 years working in the, the corporate sector. Look, the reason I've come back now is the opportunity presented itself to me. Um, you know, I've discussed uh, what it would be like with some people within the party. Um, David Seymour's done a great job at actually putting together a really high-caliber team of candidates for this election, and, yeah, I'm really lucky to be joining that team. C can you see how, in the eyes of some people, it might seem a little opportunistic? You've been overseas for 17 years, and all of a sudden, when X doing well in the polls, that's when you decide to stand. Look, I can see why people might think that, but it's certainly not the case. As I said, I've been a long-term party member and supporter, um, followed the fortunes of the party uh, off and on and yeah um, I'm you know true to the party's principles and yeah I'm keen to get back here and actually deliver some real change. Why do you deserve to be number four on the list? Well that's a question for others not for me I put myself forward into the into the process um, but as I think I said earlier you know I think ACT is wanting to deliver a really strong team to parliament of diverse New Zealanders with different backgrounds you know you've got uh, people who are from business, farming, um, small business owners, uh, yeah, people with uh, degrees in like economics and pe people who have worked in the corporate sector like myself and I think what we're wanting is a team that can actually deliver change for New Zealand. You've spent a long time working in the health and pharmaceutical industry and your most recent employer is Vertex which is the company that's developed the cystic fibrosis drug Trikafta. So a year's treatment of Trikafta costs roughly $300,000. What ethical concerns did you have about your company charging that much for treatment? Well, look, I joined uh, uh, Vertex, actually after Tricafta had been approved to be funded in New Zealand. But look, no, I don't have any ethical concerns about that. Uh, the pharmaceutical sector is actually the only sector that delivers new treatments and medicines for uh, individuals and for Kiwis. Um, and so it's spending a lot on R&D uh, globally to try and get these uh, new treatments to people. Uh, and so that has to be valued at some point. So according to the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis, just 12% of people globally with the condition receive Trikafta because, quote, the medicines are so expensive they are essentially unavailable unless reimbursed by the government. Vertex's revenue last year was more than $15 billion. In your opinion, is it OK for a company to bring in that much money while people in poor countries have no access to the treatment? Well, look, I'm not here actually to defend uh, Veritex's business uh, model, but what I can say is that, uh, you know, these large companies invest billions and billions of dollars in bringing these treatments to people, and then governments around the world make a value assessment about whether they're going to be funded. Uh, in the case of uh, Tricapta, uh, the New Zealand government, through Pharmac, decided that was of value and funded it for the New Zealand people. Mm. The, the reason I ask about it is because, according to ACT's website, an independent uh, review of Pharmac is ACT's top health priority. What, in your view, is wrong with Pharmac at the moment? Well, I'm not sure it's our top health priority. We have a number of it's health the top priorities one on, uh, yeah, it is, in the on, list. On, yeah, on yeah. the list of priorities, if you go to health under ACT on the website, that's the first thing that comes up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we also want to increase funding for GPs, etc. Look, I'm happy to give some free advice to Pharmac. Um, you know, there was obviously the independent review of Pharmac uh, not that long ago. 
I think what Kiwis are frustrated about, and we've seen it actually this week with a bunch of uh, patient groups uh, talking about the delays and why medicines are not available uh, in New Zealand when they are in Australia, is that it's uh, not a very transparent organisation. Uh, it doesn't involve its stakeholders early enough in the decision-making process. Uh, people don't understand how it reaches some of its decisions. Um, and I think it could do a lot better at actually just engaging its stakeholders in the first instance. From a philosophical perspective, do you think politicians should make decisions about which medicines are and aren't funded? Look, I think you need experts to be making decisions about what medicines are and aren't funded. I think it's the role of politicians to set the policy framework. And again, I think uh, maybe what well, it does, Pharmax kind of policy framework needs updated. It hasn't been reviewed for a very long time. The types of treatments that are being bought uh, to market are completely changed now. You know, we've got really uh, innovative treatments like CAR-T, where you're taking people's own cells, putting them through a process so they can fight cancer. So again, I think it's, it needs to evolve with where the technology is evolving. And yes, you definitely need to have experts giving that advice. So the policy that ACT is putting forward says it wants, quote, a productivity perspective based on real lives. What does that mean? Well, a lot of the treatments and innovations uh, that are being brought forward can actually deliver uh, economic benefits because you're actually treating people they can work longer or go back to work when that wasn't possible. So it would be good to uh, be able to kind of take up more of a holistic um, perspective of what is the value that these treatments and interventions are delivering. So, so just to be clear, should people who are more economically productive have prioritisation when it comes to the administration of these medicines? Not, not necessarily, but when you're looking at the value of these treatments, that should be taken into consideration. So just what, what does that mean in real terms, though? How, how might that um, make up part of the equation? Ah, well, if you, uh, your treatment can return someone to work faster... Um, then you can look at yeah, what is the, how is that benefiting the whole of society and then those bodies that are making that value judgement can decide whether that's something that should be uh, uh, put into the equation. Right. See, some people would say that whether or not you can work is not a good measure of life and that actually you can live a rich life even if you're not able to work. So, so, so why should whether or not you can contribute economically be part of that equation? Because I think that's then you can make the case for investing in some of these treatments earlier because they'll actually uh, sustain, you know, make, improve people's lives, allow them to live longer. So it's really, it really gives the government and decision makers another tool about when and when, where and when they should be investing. Uh, uh, another part of the policy is to quote, um, improve access to new, more advanced drugs. How much would that cost? Look, I think, well, this is the reason actually why we need a medicines strategy. And again, I think that's in our policy because what, what we actually need agencies like Pharmac and our health department here in New Zealand to do is actually be looking at what are these new treatments that are coming, uh, what do they mean for the health system, and then trying to actually work out what is going to be the future costs. Would ACT support spending more on funding medicines across the board? Look, that's not ACT's policy. Uh, what I would say, though, is ACT's actually trying to grow the economy uh, mm -hmm reduce government debt and waste, so there actually is more, uh, more money to spend on things that New Zealanders see as priorities. Right, right. so it's not X policy to, to increase fundings for medicine, but you do want to increase access to some of those newer medicines that are just hitting the market, medicines for rarer conditions, perhaps? Well, what I want to do is make sure we have a strategy so we know that mm. what's coming, uh, what it's going to mean for our health system, and then let's make sure we have a plan to try and uh, 
get those to Kiwis as fast as possible. So, so if, we, if we're to fund those, though, they have to essentially come at the expense of something else that's perhaps currently being funded. As I said, ACT's policy isn't to... Uh, I'm not going to announce a new policy for ACT when our policy isn't uh, a wholesale well, the, increase. No, but that's according to the website, right? So uh, improve access to new, more advanced drugs, but you won't increase funding for Pharmac across the board or whatever takes Pharmac's place across the board. You're not going to spend more money on drugs. So if we are to improve access to new and more advanced drugs, that's going to have to come at the expense of something else. There could be lots of ways we could improve access to new and advanced drugs. As I said, it could be uh, timing, could be just improving the process, uh, it could be removing uh, older medicines or replacing them with new ones. Um, so what I really... Removing older medicines, though. So those, those are medicines that would be currently funded that would no longer be funded in the future. Well, they might be, being, they might be obsolete now. But if so, they're still being used by people... Well, then, then obviously we're not going to remove those. But, I mean, we wouldn't be funding them if they're not being used by people, right? Well, not we're necessarily. not buying medicines that are just... Uh, what you find, particularly in cancer treatments, though, it, it, new treatments come along and they replace other treatments. Right, right. Would prescription prices increase? In what way? The copay? Yeah. Well, ACT's Act policy uh, isn't, isn't, would still be to have the copay. Right. Mm. A $5 copay? Yes, Right, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go higher than that? No. Right. You've been back here for a few weeks now. You've hit the campaign trail. What has surprised you about political life? Uh, look, it's, I've you know, been out. I've done six meetings in the last uh, two weeks. I think it's people are genuinely wanting to engage and have a discussion, uh, raise the issues that uh, are important to them. Um, yeah, and they are looking for change. They're looking for you know, new leadership, fresh ideas, uh, new ways to tackle the problems that is, are facing New Zealanders. As someone who's been involved with the party for nearly 30 years, yes. what do you think distinguishes ACT of today from previous iterations of the party? Oh, look, I think David Seymour's done a great job at actually, um, you know, really generational change for the party. Um, look, we still have our core principles and values around personal responsibility, freedom, you know, smaller government, making sure government's focused on what it should be doing. Um, but David's brought a really a fresh approach to doing that um, and has you know, got some great ideas and policies. On current polling, there is every reason to think that in just a few weeks you are going to be a Member of Parliament. How does that sit with you? Look, I think it's a huge responsibility, to be honest. Um, look, it's a challenge I'm looking forward to. It's, it's, it's exciting in some respects, um, but it is a huge responsibility and, and you know, I'm taking it very seriously. That is ACT candidate Todd Stevenson. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.